To those he saw every day, Danny seemed unknowable. The picture people had in their minds of him was ever-shifting, like one of those sketches used for experiments by the Gestalt psychologists. He was moody in the extreme, said a former faculty colleague. You never knew which Danny you were going to meet. He was very vulnerable, starving for admiration and affection, very edgy, very impressionable, but could get easily insulted. He smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. He'd married, and his wife had given birth to a son and a daughter, but Danny still seemed to others to live entirely through his work. He was very much task-oriented, said Zwar Shapira, a student of Danny's who later became a professor at New York University. You would not say he was a happy person. His moods put distance between Danny and other people, a bit like the distance caused by intense grief. Women felt the urge to care for him, says Yaffa Singer, who worked with Danny in the Israeli Army's psychology unit. He was always in doubt, said Dalia Etzion, who served as Danny's teaching assistant. I remember coming to him, and he was blue. He was teaching, and he said, I'm sure the students don't like me. I thought, what does it matter? And it was bizarre because the students love him. Another colleague said, he was like Woody Allen without the humor. Danny's volatility was a weakness and, less obviously, also a strength. It led him almost inadvertently to broaden himself. It turned out that Danny never really had to decide what kind of psychologist he would be. He could be and would be many different kinds of psychologists. At the same time that he was losing his faith in his ability to study personality, he was building a laboratory in which he might study vision. Danny's lab had this bench where subjects would be immobilized in a device constructed for that purpose with their mouths stuck in an impression of their own teeth, while Danny flashed various signals at their pupils. The only way to understand a mechanism such as the eye, he thought, was by studying the mistakes that it made. Error wasn't merely instructive, it was the key that might unlock the deep nature of the mechanism. How do you understand memory, he asked. You don't study memory, you study forgetting. In his vision lab, Danny searched for the ways people's eyes played tricks on them. When exposed to vanishingly brief flashes of light, for example, the brightness that the eye experienced wasn't some straightforward function of the brightness of the flash. It also depended on the length of the flash was in fact a product of the length of the flash and its intensity. A one millisecond flash with an intensity of 10x was indistinguishable from a 10 millisecond flash with an intensity of x. But when flashes of light were longer than about 300 milliseconds, the brightness looked the same to people no matter how long the flash lasted. The point of bothering to discover this was unclear, even to Danny, except that there was demand for such stuff in psychology journals and he thought that the measuring was itself good training for him. I was doing science, he said, and I was being very deliberate about what I was doing. I consciously viewed what I was doing as filling a gap in my education, something I needed to do to become a serious scientist. This sort of science didn't come naturally to him. A vision lab demanded precision, and Danny was about as precise as a desert storm. In the chaos that was his office, his secretary got so tired of being asked to help him search for his scissors, as she tied them by a string to his desk chair. Even his interests were chaotic. That the same person could be mentally following school kids into the wilderness to ask them how many people they wanted sleeping in their tent and sticking grown-ups' teeth into a vice to study how their eyes worked struck even other psychologists as odd. Personality testers were hunting for loose correlations between some trait and some behavior, tent choice and sociability, for example, or IQ and job performance. They didn't need to be precise. 
and they need know nothing about people as biological organisms. Danny's studies of the human eye felt less like psychology than ophthalmology. He nursed along other interests, too. He wanted to study what was known to psychologists as perceptual defense, but to everybody else as subliminal perception. A wave of anxiety had swept the United States in the late 1950s, thanks to a book by Vance Packard called The Hidden Persuaders, about the power of advertising to warp people's decisions by influencing them subconsciously. Pete Craze came in New Jersey, where a market researcher claimed that he had spliced imperceptibly brief messages like hungry, eat popcorn, and drink Coca-Cola into a movie and created a surge of demand for popcorn and Coke. He later confessed he'd made it all up. Psychologists in the late 1940s had detected, or claimed to have detected, the mind's ability to defend itself from what it ostensibly did not want to perceive. When the experimenters flashed taboo words in front of subjects' eyes, for instance, the subjects read them as some less troubling word. At the same time, people were also influenced by the world around them in all sorts of ways without being entirely conscious of it. Stuff got into the mind without the mind's full awareness. How did these unconscious processes work? How could a person understand a word well enough to distort it without first having perceived it in some fashion? Was there perhaps more than one mechanism inside the mind at work? Did some part of the mind perceive incoming signals, say, while another part of the mind blocked them? I was always interested in the question, are there other ways to understand your experience, Danny said. Perceptual defense was interesting because it seemed to get at unconscious life with proper experimental techniques. Danny designed some tests himself to see if, as he suspected, people were able to learn subconsciously. He showed subjects a series of playing cards or numbers, for example, and then asked them to predict what would come next. There was a hard-to-detect sequence in the cards or the numbers. If the subjects were able to sense the sequence, they would guess the next card or number more frequently than they would by chance, and they wouldn't know why. They'd have perceived the pattern without being aware of it. They'd have learned something subconsciously. Danny abandoned his experiments after he decided that his subjects had learned nothing. That was another thing colleagues and students noticed about Danny, how quickly he moved on from his enthusiasms, how easily he accepted failure. It was as if he expected it, but he wasn't afraid of it. He'd try anything. He thought of himself as someone who enjoyed, more than most, changing his mind. I get a sense of movement and discovery whenever I find a flaw in my thinking, he said. His theory of himself dovetailed neatly with his moodiness. In his darker moods, he became fatalistic and so wasn't surprised or disturbed when he did fail. He'd been proved right. In his up moments, he was so full of enthusiasm that he seemed to forget the possibility of failure and would run with any new idea that came his way. He could drive people up the wall with his volatility, said fellow Hebrew University psychologist Maya Bar-Hillel. Something was genius one day and crap the next, and genius the next day and crap the next. What drove others crazy might have helped to keep Danny sane. His moods were grease for his idea factory. If Danny's various intellectual pursuits had a common theme, other than his interest in them, it was hard for others to detect it. He had no ability to see what is a waste of time and what is not, said Dahlia Etzion. He was willing to accept anything as possibly interesting. Suspicious of psychoanalysis, I always thought it was a lot of mumbo-jumbo, he nevertheless accepted an invitation from the American psychoanalyst David Rappaport to spend a summer at the Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. 
Each Friday morning, the Austin Riggs psychoanalysts, some of the biggest names in the field, would gather to discuss a patient whom they had spent a month observing. All these experts would have by then written up their reports on the patient. After delivering their diagnoses, they would bring in the patient for an interview. One week, Danny watched the psychoanalyst discuss a patient, a young woman. The night before they were meant to interview her, she committed suicide. None of the psychoanalysts, world experts who had spent a month studying the woman's mental state, had worried that she might kill herself. None of their reports so much as hinted at the risk of suicide. Now they all agreed. How could we have missed it, Danny recalled. The signs were all there. It made so much sense to them after the fact, and so little sense before the fact. Any faint interest Danny might have had in psychoanalysis vanished. I was aware at the time that this was very instructive, he said. Not about the troubled patients, but about the psychoanalysts, or anyone else who was in a position to revise his forecast about the outcome of some uncertain event once he had knowledge of that outcome. In 1965, he went to the University of Michigan for postdoctoral study with a psychologist named Gerald Blum. Blum was busy testing how powerful emotional states changed the way people handled various mental tasks. To do this, he needed to induce in his subjects powerful emotional states. He did so with hypnosis. He'd first ask people to describe in detail some horrible life experience. He'd then give them a trigger to associate with the event, say, a card that read A100. Then he'd hypnotize them, show them the card, and, sure enough, they'd instantly start to relive their horrible experience. Then he'd see how they performed some taxing mental task, say, repeating a string of numbers. It was weird, and I did not take to it, said Danny though he did learn how to hypnotize people. I ran some sessions with our best subject, a tall, thin guy whose eyes would bulge and his face redden as he was shown the A100 card that instructed him to have the worst emotional experience of his life for a few seconds. Once again, it wasn't long before Danny found himself undermining the validity of the entire enterprise. One day I asked, how about we give them a choice between that and a mild electric shock, he recalled. He figured that anyone given a choice between reliving the worst experience of his life and a mild electric shock would choose the shock. None of the patients wanted the shock. They all said they'd much rather relive the worst experience of their lives. Blum was horrified because he wouldn't hurt a fly, said Danny. And that's when I realized that it was a stupid game, that it cannot be the worst experience of their lives. Somebody is faking. And so I got out of that field. That same year, a psychologist named Eckhard Hess wrote an article in Scientific American that caught Danny's eye. What didn't? Hess described the results of experiments he'd done measuring the dilation and constriction of the pupil in response to all sorts of stimuli. You showed a man the picture of a scantily dressed woman and his pupils expanded. The same thing happened when you showed a woman a picture of a good-looking man. On the other hand, if you showed people a picture of a shark, their pupils shrank. Abstract art had the same effect, curiously. If you gave people something tasty to drink, their pupils dilated. If you gave them something unpleasant, lemon juice or quinine, their pupils shrank. If you gave them tastes of five subtly different orange fizzy drinks, their pupils registered the degree of pleasure they got from each. People reacted incredibly quickly before they were entirely conscious of which one they liked best. The essential sensitivity of the pupil response, wrote Hess, suggests that it can reveal preferences in some cases in which the actual taste differences are so slight that the subject cannot even articulate them. The eye might offer a window into the mind. 
In Blum's hypnosis lab with a psychologist named Jackson Beatty, whom he'd poached from Blum, Danny set out to investigate how the pupil responded when people were asked to perform various tasks that required mental effort, remember strings of digits or distinguish sounds of different pitches. They were seeking to understand not whether the eye played tricks on the mind, but if the mind also played tricks on the eye, or as they put it, how intense mental activity hinders perception. They found that it wasn't just emotional arousal that altered the size of the pupil. Mental effort had the same effect. There was, quite possibly, as they put it, an antagonism between thinking and perceiving. From Michigan, Danny planned to return to a tenured job at Hebrew University. When the university delayed its decision on whether to give him tenure, he refused to return. I was very angry, he said. I called and said, I'm not coming back. Instead, in the fall of 1966, he went to Harvard. Three years at Berkeley had persuaded him that he was smart enough to play in the big leagues. There he heard a talk given by a young British psychologist named Anne Treisman that sent him in yet another direction. In the early 1960s, Treisman had picked up where the work of fellow Brits Colin Cherry and Donald Broadbent had left off. Cherry, a cognitive scientist, had identified what became known as the cocktail party effect. The cocktail party effect was the ability of people to filter a lot of noise for the sounds they wished to hear, as they did when they listened to someone at a cocktail party. It was in those days a practical problem because of the design of air traffic control towers. In the early control towers, the voices of all the pilots who needed guidance were broadcast through loudspeakers. Air traffic controllers had to filter the voices to identify the relevant airplane. It was just assumed that they could ignore the voices that they needed to ignore in order to focus on the voice that required their attention. Together with another British colleague, Neville Moray, Treisman set out to see just how selectively people listened when they listened selectively. Nobody had done or was doing any research in the field of selective listening, she wrote in her memoir, so we had it more or less to ourselves. She and Moray had put people in headphones attached to a two-channel tape recorder and piped two different passages of prose simultaneously into separate ears. Treisman asked the subjects to repeat back to her as they listened one of the passages. Afterward, she asked them what they had picked up from the passage they had supposedly ignored. It turned out that they hadn't entirely ignored it. Some words and phrases got through to the mind even if they hadn't been invited. For instance, if their name was in the passage that they were assigned to ignore, people would often hear it. This surprised Treisman, along with the few other people then paying attention to attention. I thought at the time that attention was a complete filtering, said Treisman, but it turns out that some kind of monitoring goes on. The question I had was, how do we do this? When and how does the content get through? In her Harvard talk, Treisman proposed that people possessed not an on-off switch that enabled them to pay attention to whatever they intended to pay attention to, but a more subtle mechanism that selectively weakened, rather than entirely blocked, background noise. That background noise might get through was, of course, not the happiest news for passengers and airplanes circling the control tower, but it was interesting. Anne Treisman was on a flying visit to Harvard where the demand to hear what she had to say was so great that her talk had to be moved to a big public lecture hall off campus. Danny left the talk filled with new enthusiasm. He asked to be deputized to look after Treisman and her traveling party, which included her mother, her husband, and their two small children. He gave them a tour of Harvard. He was very eager to impress, said Treisman, and so I let myself be impressed. 
It would be years before Danny and Anne left their marriages and married each other, but it took no time at all for Danny to engage Treisman's ideas. In the fall of 1967, Danny had gotten over his feelings of being slighted and returned to Hebrew University with the promise of tenure and an entirely new research program. It was now possible, with double-channel tape recorders, to measure how well people divided their attention or switched their attention from one thing to another. It stood to reason that some people might be better at it than others and that the ability might offer an advantage in certain lines of work. With this in mind, Danny went to England at the invitation of the Cambridge Applied Psychology Unit to test professional soccer players. He thought that there might be a difference in the attention-switching abilities of players in the first Premier League and players in the fourth league. He took the train from Cambridge to Arsenal, home to a Premier League soccer team, with his heavy dual-track tape recorder beside him. He put the headphones on the players and tested their ability to switch from the message playing in one ear to the message playing in the other and found nothing, or at least no obvious difference between them and the players in the lower-ranked league. A talent for playing soccer didn't require any special ability to switch attention. Then I thought, this could be critical in pilots, he recalled. He knew from working with flight instructors that the cadets training to fly fighter jets sometimes failed because they either couldn't divide their attention between tasks or were slow to pick up on seemingly unimportant but actually critical background signals. He returned to Israel and tested cadets who were training to fly jets for the Air Force. This time he found what he was looking for. The successful fighter pilots were better able to switch attention than the unsuccessful ones, and both were better at it than Israeli bus drivers. Eventually, one of Danny's students discovered that you could predict, from how efficiently they switched channels, which Israeli bus drivers were more likely to have accidents. There was a relentlessness in the way Danny's mind moved from insight to application. Psychologists, especially the ones who became university professors, weren't exactly known for being useful. The demands of being an Israeli had forced Danny to find a talent in himself he might otherwise never have spotted. His high school friend, Ariel Ginsberg, thought that the Israeli army had made Danny more practical. The creation of a new interview system and its effect on an entire army had been intoxicating. The most popular class Danny taught at Hebrew University was a graduate seminar he called Applications of Psychology. Each week, he brought in some real-world problem and told the students to use what they knew from psychology to address it. Some of the problems came from Danny's many attempts to make psychology useful to Israel. After terrorists started placing bombs in city trash cans and one in the Hebrew University cafeteria in March 1969 that wounded 29 students, Danny asked, what does psychology tell you that might be useful to the government, which is trying to minimize the public's panic? Before they could arrive at an answer, the government removed the trash cans. Israelis in the 1960s lived with constant change. Immigrants who had come from city life were channeled onto collective farms. The farms themselves underwent fairly constant technological upheaval. Danny designed a course to train the people who trained the farmers. Reforms always create winners and losers, Danny explained, and the losers will always fight harder than the winners. How did you get the losers to accept change? The prevailing strategy on the Israeli farms, which wasn't working very well, was to bully or argue with the people who needed to change. The psychologist Kurt Lewin had suggested persuasively that rather than selling people on some change, you were better off identifying the reasons for their resistance and addressing those. Imagine a plank 
held in place by a spring on either side of it, Danny told the students. How do you move it? Well, you can increase the force on one side of the plank, or you can reduce the force on the other side. In one case, the overall tension is reduced, he said, and in the other, it is increased. And that was a sort of proof that there was an advantage in reducing the tension. It's a key idea, said Danny, making it easy to change. Danny was also training Air Force flight instructors to train fighter pilots, but only on the ground. The one time they took him up in a plane, he vomited into his oxygen mask. How did you get fighter pilots to memorize a series of instructions? We started making a long list, recalled Sor Shapira. Danny says no. He tells us about the magical number seven. The magical number seven plus or minus two, some limits on our capacity for processing information, was a paper written by Harvard psychologist George Miller, which showed that people had the ability to hold in their short-term memory seven items, more or less. Any attempt to get them to hold more was futile. Miller half-jokingly suggested that the seven deadly sins, the seven seas, the seven days of the week, the seven primary colors, the seven wonders of the world, and several other famous sevens had their origins in this mental truth. At any rate, the most effective way to teach people longer strings of information was to feed the information into their minds in smaller chunks. To this, Shapiro recalled, Danny added his own twist. He says you only tell them a few things and get them to sing it. Danny loved the idea of the action song. In his statistics classes, he had actually asked his students to sing the formulas. He forced you to engage with problems, said Baruch Fischoff, a student who became a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Even if they were complicated problems without simple solutions, he made you feel you could do something useful with this science. A lot of the problems Danny threw at his students felt like pure whim. He asked them to design a currency so that it was hard to counterfeit. Was it better for bills of different denominations to resemble each other, as they did in the United States, thus leading anyone accepting them to examine them closely? Or should they have a wide variety of colors and shapes so that they were harder to copy? He asked them how they would design a workplace to make it more efficient. And, of course, they must be familiar with the psychological research showing that some wall colors led workers to be more productive than others. Some of Danny's problems were so abstruse and strange that the student's first response was, Um, we'll need to go to the library and get back to you on that. When we said that, recalled Sor Shapira, Danny responded, mildly upset, by saying, You have completed a three-year program in psychology. You are by definition professionals. Don't hide behind research. Use your knowledge to come up with a plan. But what were you supposed to say when Danny brought in a copy of a doctor's prescription from the 12th century, sloppily written in a language you didn't know a word of, and asked you to decode it? Someone once said that education was knowing what to do when you don't know, said one of his students. Danny took that idea and ran with it. One day, Danny brought in a stack of those games in which the object is to guide a small metal ball through a wooden maze. The assignment he gave his students? Teach someone how to teach someone else how to play the game. It would never occur to anyone that you could teach this, recalled one of the students. The trick was to break it down into the component skills, learning how to hold your hand steady, learning how to tilt slightly to the right, and so on, then teach them separately, and then, once you taught them all, put them together. The guy at the store who sold the games to Danny found the whole idea of it hysterical. But to Danny, useful advice, however obvious, was better than no advice at all. 
He asked his students to figure out what advice they would give to an Egyptologist who was having difficulty deciphering a hieroglyph. He tells us that the guy is going slower and slower and getting more and more stuck, recalled Daniela Gordon, a student who became a researcher in the Israeli army. Then Danny asks, what should he do? No one could think of anything. And Danny says, he should take a nap. Danny's students left every class with a sense that there was really no end to the problems in this world. Danny found problems where none seemed to exist. It was as if he structured the world around him so that it might be understood chiefly as a problem. To each new class, the students arrived wondering what problem he might bring for them to solve. Then one day, he brought them Amos Tversky.